0: and uh with the people that are here first by the way i don't hear anything is could somebody speak hello yeah okay okay oh, that's Great. fine Great. wonderful okay that's fine that's fine. i just well, was wondering whether you were watching somebody's lips move and uh still sitting in a vacuum thank you so is jean luca here so n- no, okay Unfortunately, we might come back to Jean's question then. Uh, next is uh, Boris Zickel, and he, Boris uh, said, and told me in advance that he wouldn't be able to be at this, but he asked if I would answer the question anyway, so. Um, uh, anybody wanna give me a thumbs down or on that, or you want me to answer your questions first? Okay, here we go, Boris. <clears throat> we're all in favor of your getting your questions answers. It says, okay, is it possible to say that the experience of the still point and the that of the equanimity factor in the fourth jhana are of the same nature, quality? Well, now, uh, okay, that is uh, an interesting question. Um, Let's see, is the other related to that? No, it's, it's on a different subject. So, um, on the one hand, of course, equanimity is equanimity, but it can come about in a variety of ways. It can be, um, I think the right word wouldn't be stronger, but rather more robust or less robust. In other words, there are states of equanimity that are, Uh, more fragile, Uh, so uh, something a bit uh, uh, too emotionally charged or whatever can cause that equanimity to fail. So it varies in in, uh, the intensity and it also varies in the different ways of inducing a state of equanimity and uh, and that does have something to do also with uh, how long that state of, how robust that state of equanimity is. So the, and there's, yeah, so the, The state of equanimity in the fourth jhana is, it's dependent to a large degree upon being in that flow state. And I, I hypothesize, I know what it feels like subjectively in jhana and in all flow states. Um, and I hypothesize that the way that the, uh, the equanimity of jhana, well, let's not talk about the equanimity yet, that the flow state of jhana is induced basically by the mind somehow temporarily shutting down or blocking access to consciousness or something. All those parts of the mind that are not required to be active during the flow state so you know a surgeon's in a flow state for example or, or a baseball player same thing with a meditator The meditators in a flow state it's achieved by somehow there's some neural mechanism it's a universal thing everybody enters, enters into flow states all the time they're a wonderful wonderful thing our brain does and a flow state in meditation is the jhana so in terms of the equanimity that arises as a result of fourth jhana, it's a result of your brain exhibiting this particular kind of behavior uh, that uh, minimizes anything that will interrupt the, the flow state. And obviously in the fourth jhana, that's going to that's going to include Uh, most kinds of uh, stimuli that are likely to, uh, well, basically disrupt the flow state. I mean, it's no different than juggling, right? Your mind, your brain is juggling, right? And you enter in the flow state of the jhana. So you can achieve a wonderful state of equanimity there. It's a powerful state. Fourth jhana, you could do so many things in. But the equanimity of fourth jhana, is dependent upon a set of causes and conditions that can't be sustained when you leave the flow state. It may be sustained to some degree or another, so that's a flow state that passes away. The interesting thing about the still point, it's the same thing, that when you you get to that still point in your meditation, you enjoy a kind of equanimity. Now, in this case, it's more a I, I just going into an almost pure um, metacognitive uh, awareness. You're just you're you're aware of every everything that's going on, but you're, that awareness is in a place that is total of total stillness, right? And that is something that your mind can learn to do. And it can be a great assist in, uh, you know, the, there's equanimity that comes from Samatha, and there's equanimity that comes from uh, Vipassana. And uh, the practicing the still point, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that that has something to do with the, the fact that realizing the witness and uh, that it just kind of comes automatically out of the flow state is, is that... Um, it teaches your your mind, brain, you know, however, whichever way you want to look at it, to enter into a state of equanimity that's uh, not really dependent upon in anything. The same way the flow state is, it is not in itself very robust. And so, uh, as long as you're in the state of meditation, you, there's tremendous equanimity. Associated with the uh, uh, flow state of uh, of the still point, but nevertheless, when you come out of the still point, that equanimity will fade. Now, there's a difference, though. It wasn't dependent upon creating uh, a flow state. This equanimity was achieved in a different way. Which, if I were to hypothesize about it, it is. Really, it's reducing the sense of self to, to uh, such a, it really consists of very little other than a, than a point of view. It's an agency-less, uh, action-less, uh, point of observation. And, it, and it, gives, it gives rise to a strong state of equanimity that your mind can learn to do uh, and it's a part of the equanimity that's going to arise as a result of unification of mind and everything else. So they're different. That's that's how these two are different in in their origins, and their long term, the their origins. And I keep there is a time factor in here, but it, what it really is is their robustness. How long? How long they could? How long the equanimity can survive the flow state at the still point before uh, before something comes along that's sufficient to to uh, penetrate that equanimity. And because of because the practicing the still point actually cultivates that ability, so it lasts. It becomes more robust over time. It's a very very powerful practice. It's uh, essentially uh I'd say the central practice uh leading to the witness state in uh Advaita Vedanta so there are these there are some differences between these equanimities and I hope that satisfies Boris does anybody have any questions that come to mind as a result of this yes Katyana Good to see you.
1: I I wrote actually the question in your um, uh, message box, but I can read it to you. So what would you say are the causes of obstruction in... um...
0: Sorry, I'm not hearing it.
1: Um... Can you hear me now?
0: Yes, I can now, yes.
1: What What are the causes of obstruction in the flow state uh, from Theravadan perspective?
0: Oh, well, uh, now that's a good question. There we have to do a little translating, I guess, from... Uh, um, The, I think uh, the, what we're doing here is applying the uh, psychology of flow states to jhana. And um, so what we have to understand is that uh, the word absorption, uh, which is, is key to jhana, the word absorption uh, can denote that kind of complete, uh, single pointed or uh, 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 exclusive attention that we associate with entering, uh, entering jhana. Um, but there can be lesser degrees of absorption too. Which you experience, uh, for example, in in stage seven, you don't have that kind of effortless uh, stability that uh, that you will at, at stage eight. But um... would you um,
1: would you uh, think that? Um non-dual, touching on the non-dualistic is, um, uh, and having a dualistic outlook uh, in perceptual reality is the main reason for obstruction in the flow flow state, and that um, when we are in those deep states of absorption, whether it's in a jhana state or even in just our, whatever our practice is, that, um, that we can access that through letting go of that dualistic, Perception.
0: Well, that was a that was a big question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I'm having a little.
1: No, there's no. uh, I can wait uh, another time. Okay,
0: so you're asking about obstructions to jhana, obstructions to flow state, and maybe, maybe. If I understood what you're trying to get at spe- more specifically, I could give you a better answer. Um,
1: well, I often hear this this, this phrase, obstruction, and yes. you know, you couched it in terms of flow states. And um, from what I've understood of it, it, is it's it's, it's the state to go beyond what our is is our dualistic kind of uh, perception of reality.
0: Yes, um, yes I didn't yes. know. I
1: that that's. That's what you were alluding to, and how, or how you would define, in a sense, a yeah. uh, flow state.
0: No, that is that is one of the characteristics of a flow state, and uh, it's one of it, it's it's one that uh, it, it's very common outside of meditation. So of course, uh, the it it is one of the characteristics of jhana as well. Is that is that yes, yeah, so you it's the sense of self is enormously reduced, uh, right? So uh, in, a, in a typical flow state, even in meditation, but in, outside of meditation as well, uh, but even in meditation, it's the same way that Cheek Sentley Haley, Haley, I don't know if I pronounced his name right, describes it. It's that it's as if it's doing itself and you, you're, you're kind of like in the, in the uh, uh, still point. You're, all you are is the observer, and, and it's doing itself. So the attention is remaining focused in the first jhana on, the, on your meditation object. The awareness is open and all-encompassing. There's the presence of joy and so on and so forth. But there's, there's nobody... There's no sense of anybody doing anything. There's just a sense of the awareness in there. So that's that's what you're referring to, right? Yeah. And well, um, you,
1: I mean, were you talking? Did you talk, just say Chiksan, the uh, the Zen master? Was that the story? Did you say Chiksan?
0: No, I didn't. No. Chiksan no. Mahaley. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Chiksan Mahaley, right? Oh, Csikszentmihalyi, yeah, the yeah, the uh, he's the positive psychologist who uh, uh, first first brought the flow state to everybody's attention uh, as a phenomenon. Yeah, so it's part of his. Uh, you you'll find it in in the uh, in the book in the uh, uh, chapter where I discuss uh, the 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 in uh, on, on stage six where I'm talking about. Uh, Flow states there, and I quote from Csikszentmihalyi, the, the qualities of it. And one of them is the sense that there is no agent that's doing it. And then this becomes particularly pronounced in the jhanas. And that's the wonderful thing about jhanas. Uh, also, the limited thing about them is, yeah, you can see what it's like to just experiencing things happening. And you can experience your mind happening. But, with, but nobody's doing anything. As a matter of fact, if that arises, it will break the jhana, which it sometimes does in the in the uh, less steep jhanas. So, uh, thank you. And the deeper jhanas, it doesn't arise at all. There's, there's no sense of it. So, yeah, is it, this is related to uh, Boris' question about, uh, the similarities and, and differences of the the, the still point. And I was talking about flow as far as, uh, as far as genre goes, right? Yeah. yeah. The still point is not a flow state in, 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 in that kind of sense of the some mechanism that's blocking things from disturbing the flow state. It's
1: uh, yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Different in nature. I'm not sure what the abstraction part was referring to, but okay. Um, Let's look at um, Boris' next question here. Can physical pliancy come gradually? Uh, And he says, "I am now able to sit for one hour with blissful comfort, which is quite new for me. Uh, But then I lose it. Yeah, it's still." is it still a manifestation of physical pliancy, and uh, will it be extending gradually, or it only counts when one can sit for hours uh, yeah and the answer to this is is yes it can it can come gradually, and of course it counts before you can sit for hours, but usually when uh, you know when you're when you 're really sitting in this in this place of of Classification, and you've arrived at it uh, through the through the progressive process. Then, most of the time, you're it. It's it's uh, not going to take very long before this is where you sit every time. At least, certainly, this this is the way I experienced it. Now, I know for some people, though. That it seems to be, yeah, you can you be in this nice night state, night state of pacification, comfortable, you know, all of the description, you have just the light, uh, perhaps the sound, and uh, your body has this uh, wonderful light, almost uh, ephemeral uh, sensation to it, but you can't sustain it, and then, uh, and then you go back, you, you reach that place multiple times. But I would what was what was my experience and what from what I can tell uh, is i 'd say more commonly the situation is that you you approach the flow state uh, not the flow state i uh, still got that in my head. you approach the state of of complete pacification uh, and and then it falls away when you finally reach that state of complete pacification it's still might only last uh, the first time it happens for you know say a couple of hours, but you 're probably already going to have been sitting for an hour anyway. What you find subsequently is it 's much, much easier to uh, get into uh, a state of complete pacification you go through you 'll go through p d there will be of course some sits where you you don 't get there at all but uh, it becomes more the case that uh, that let's put, let's uh, think of it as a skill. It's basically what it is. You're training. Uh, well, no, it's not really a skill. It's, a, it's you're training the mind to use the skills that it has in a particular way, and so. It's it's usually, it's like, it's the kind of training, you know, there's some things that you progressively get better step by step, but then there's some things that you get the hang of it. And once you've got the hang of it, then it's just a question of refining it. And uh, so my answer to Boris is uh, that that can happen both ways. And just for you, uh, my experience of it, and I think a, a more common experience of it. Now, some of you have been through this, and you can say, uh, you know, I'd be happy to hear from you uh, what your experience was of, of reaching physical pliancy. But I know with me that once once I'd achieved physical pliancy, then uh, my, my experience was more likely to be with most sits, is that I, I would find it really difficult to end the sit when I intended to, my timer would go off. And I just, it, it, was, it was just so wonderful to be there that it uh, uh, took, took something a little extra to convince myself that I should really uh, break that, that bliss of physical pliancy and get up. So anybody would like, like to share their experience of... Uh, Entering into physical pliancy, whether it was incremental or more of a more of a you get the hang of it and then you just get better at it from that point. I, I see Katiana's, uh face. Your your box is highlighted, 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 but uh, you don't seem to be saying anything. Anybody else? No. Okay, so I think we've answered Boris question. Is Michelle here today? Hey, Michelle! Hi. Oh, I recognize you. <laughs> Good to see you again. Let's see. You're, Michelle is asking us. Uh, she says there is the understanding of the emptiness of self and impermanence. At times, there can be brief moments of knowing that. Uh, arises and passes away, the knowing itself arises and passes away, yeah. I am wondering how to work with this, and maybe the idea that there is something to be worked with is a hindrance in itself. Uh, Okay, so, the understanding of emptiness of self and impermanence, and this brief... Brief moments of just knowing that. So these are what I would refer to as insight experiences, <clears throat> And an insight experience becomes an insight when it uh, uh, becomes it becomes a new way that you tend to see things most of the time and it gets stronger and part of the maturation if what you're seeing right now is emptiness and impermanence then that is also going to bring an awareness of interconnectedness Uh, uh, it's going to uh, it's going to bring not just the emptiness of self, but the emptiness of all formations. As a matter of fact, usually the emptiness of formations comes before the sense of emptiness of self. That's usually sort of the culmination thing. But you can get tastes of it. But uh, more often, it's the uh, it's some aspect of of emptiness or impermanence. Uh, or another uh, another gateway insight is is uh, uh, suffering. And um, yeah, so you can have insight in, into Dukkha. Um, so um, yeah, is there, what, what else would you like me to say about that? you, know, you want to know how to work with it. Oh, very important point. Okay, thanks. Um, I can't hear you. Yeah. Let's see, somebody would, you'll have to unmute yourself or get somebody to unmute you. Still can't hear.
2: Can you hear me now?
0: Hey, I can hear you now, it's wonderful. Right. Okay.
2: So it's almost like the mind gets extremely still so there are no thoughts. And in that moment, mm-hmm. it's where the knowing occurs. Right. Um, and it's more occurring um, pretty consistently throughout mm-hmm. the day. Yeah, uh, but then, but then the mind interjects and like, oh, there's got to be something to work with here. And sometimes I think the hindrance is mm-hmm. just not letting go and allowing for the knowing to um, kind of permeate everything.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. It is, and I would, uh, I, I would uh view the hindrance as being those parts of the mind that have not have not realized that insight so and especially if you're talking about emptiness of of self but but impermanence say that uh, you know the real insight into impermanence is realizing that there's nothing but change of course that's what is that what we're talking about
2: that's
0: right yeah. <laughs> okay just there's just there's just process. There's just flow. There there are no things. Okay, so. and so that's the that's really the emptiness of phenomenon. Is you realize you, your mind is making things out of process, right, yeah. right. So, um, you what the best way to work with this is. There's parts of your mind that grasp this, and when there's uh, when there are, when those parts of your mind are unified, and there's not many other parts of the mind that uh, haven't realized this, uh, then uh, you you are well. When you have that experience, that still place, and you're really experiencing impermanence, then uh, what uh, what happens is that other parts of your mind they. Share in that experience. So when it becomes conscious, it becomes available to those parts of the mind. So this this is how let's uh, an insight into impermanence becomes spread. Now, what you can do to help that is, is you know, it'll this experience will pass. And basically, those parts of the mind that are constitu- con- constituting the conscious you, the whatever this this part of you is that happens to be conscious at that time, is. Has not primarily uh, gotten, gotten the insight into impermanence, doesn't see things as changed. But you can call it up again at those times. Mm-hmm. Okay? You can recollect what that experience was like. You can, rec- you can see that the, the way that everything was just flow and process, uh, you can recall that. And you can see you're now looking at something and you're saying, ah, it looks like it's just stable and unchanging, but it's changing in ways that I can't see. And it's, it's just that it's changing at, uh, in, in such a way that, that my mind only sees it as a fixed object, but it's not really that. So you bring that, that understanding into those other moments. And what you're doing is you're helping enough of your mind to reach the critical point of understanding impermanence that uh, it becomes the way you see things most of the time. In the process of this, you'll have realized, you know, the, the, uh, uh, there, there will be both impermanence and there will be the emptiness of formations. Uh, there's also uh, going to be the recognition that all of this is one single flow. So you're going to realize the interconnect, the causal interconnectedness of everything. I mean, that's why there's nothing but change, because everything is constantly uh, affecting everything else. So you have this this pure process of uh, change taking place that your mind is projecting objects onto uh, out, out, out of the flow. Uh, and that uh, you can see that it's all part of a larger causal whole. That uh, um, that it couldn't be any other way. And the only way that your mind could work in the world is by imposing this this, uh, this image. Eventually, that uh, will come to those that, those realizations will come to be applied to the selves. So the self is uh, is empty it's it's just a construction of the mind um it's even it's even empty in a different sense than say uh when you see a table out of what you know is just a process that's not changing and fastly rapidly enough to be obvious to you but you'll you'll realize it's uh that it's it, it's empty that it's a process um that it's it's something that's arising due to causes and conditions, and that uh, it, it really doesn't have any kind of substance to itself. Uh, now, suffering uh, is the insight that comes into this, uh, can come into this process in a very disturbing way if your mind is not prepared. But if your mind is appropriately prepared, you essentially the the knowledge or insight into suffering is the realization that that suffering itself is empty in the sense that it's something that your mind is creating in and resistance to what is and resistance to impermanence and emptiness and interconnectedness and everything else like this and so uh, it may be associated with a feeling as though you're, you know, I like jumping off of a cliff or something like that, right? Uh, but, but it, it, you know, it, it's like you jump off the cliff and you discover you're flying uh, sort, of, sort of thing. But it, it can come more gradually and more painfully as well. Uh, we're sort of kind of talking about one extreme. Um, the other extreme is somebody where there is so much, so much of the whole mind system is clinging so tightly to the sense of self. And uh, the, one of the things that reinforces the sense of self is this, it uh, is, it um, is, the craving is the belief that that pleasure can be obtained uh, and that pain can be avoided, right yeah, so to in, in the in in somebody that that has had the experience of you know that joy and pleasure. Are something that the mind creates already. I mean, they've already had a practical experience of the emptiness of suffering. But somebody that hasn't had that, somebody who still has a lot of self clinging, and they still have a lot of craving, that their practice hasn't really done anything to diminish that. Then they, then uh, this this sense of self is is its basic function is to protect us uh, from death, right? And so uh, without this kind of preparation, this kind of background, then the person can react in uh, a lot of the ways that people do when they're confronted with, with the immediate prospect of, of their own death, except that um, you just have to keep on going right yeah. and so the the uh, and so these people can it can be extended for quite some time uh, it's going to trigger it's going to trigger every buried no unfortunately you know, it's not going to trigger everyone but it's going to it's going to trigger a, a lot of the buried neurosis and things like that it's all going to come up as a part of this 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 fear of death this this fear of irreparable loss this realization that there's nothing to grasp to everything you know uh, it all becomes terrible whereas seeing everything right now when you see everything as being changed it's probably a wow isn't that isn't that cool i, I really you can experience this it doesn't look that way anymore when there's a part of your mind trying to find something to hold on to you know
2: yeah. and what i'm right. experiencing is in sits i was spending a lot of time in the moment between the arising and passing. Yeah, right. And I found that that has transferred into time off the cushion. Mm -hmm. And physical pliancy has been off the cushion. Everything's now coming Ah. off the cushion. Uh, Right, right. Sometimes it's comfortable, yes, and sometimes it's um, like walking in two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that right. might be where some of the clinging is is just allowing it to be this way from now on, uh, and that's how mm-hmm. you work with that
0: Yes, yeah you're absolutely right it it that is that is part of the process you have to go through it It becomes easier uh, you know uh, Katiana probably will will like this, but really, we could think of. What's happening is a series of realizations of non-dualities. Uh, we begin with non-dual, the of, of, of non-duality of self and other, the non-duality of mind and matter. These these are the the easier ones. Uh, eventually, uh, comes the non-duality of being and non-being, which reduces uh, uh, reduces craving and self-clinging and everything to uh, I mean, it just basically renders them, renders, renders them meaningless.
2: Well, that's how it feels, it's like there's nothing left to hold on to, but, and it's just that, just allowing it. So that's why I wondered if thinking there was something to work with was the hindrance mm-hmm. to just allow it.
0: Yeah. Yes, uh, But but you can encourage it by... When, when insight is not as strong or when it's not there, you know, bring, bring it to mind. Bring, bring that insight into the present moment. You may not experience that, but you have the recollection of it. And sometimes that will be enough to produce the, the experience of the insight as well. And as the insights collectively mature, you're, you're really, you're, you're, you're on the way, you're on the path. You're amazing. You're an amazing meditator. I was really impressed with you when you were with us at the stronghold. But uh, yeah, I, I you may be confusing me with somebody. I haven't
2: been at stronghold yet. Oh,
0: you haven't. Maybe I am confusing you <laughs> with either. someone else. Uh, okay, yes. you remind me of someone else, and she was uh, she was I, I think her name's Michelle as well, and and she just she she was just amazing. She did a retreat, and she. She just went through the stages like magic, almost. It was quite impressive. It was just a few months ago, so.
2: Well, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Okay, so I'm not going to get through very many questions at this rate, but uh, oh, uh, yes, Uh, Williams here, right? My good, oh, yes, there he is. I see you, hidden, hidden in front of a pile of books. <laughs> okay, good. Right, okay. So, um, sorry for all this moving back and forth. Uh, um, for the past few years, I've been, un- I've been aware of feeling vibrations throughout various parts of my body when I'm not meditating. These vibratory sensations are most prominent in my feet, Hands, but also felt throughout my extremities and trunk. They become most prominent when I'm sitting, standing still, or lying down. For many years, I've also felt a sort of burning sensation at the tips of my fingers, sometimes when I start to urinate. These sensations are different from the PT that I experience, sometimes as a sort of showers or locally in my head, back, or throughout my body. Sensation of PT is like tingling or bubbles bursting. The sensations that are aroused with yawning and sneezing are very uh, similar to the tingling during meditation. Actually, that is a really good analogy. I I, you know, yeah. That's a really good thing to compare it to. Everybody knows what that that feeling, you have a big yawn and and just sort of spreading tingling feeling. Yes, I know what you're talking about exactly. My question is, What should I do with the sensations when I'm not meditating? Should I continue to put my awareness of breathing at the nose and just keep these sensations in peripheral awareness? Um, So this is, you're asking about not meditating, and uh, maybe, I don't wanna get lost on this part of the question here. Uh, So you're not meditating and you have these sensations, should you continue to put your awareness uh, of breathing out the nose, do you mean attention and and are you talking about something that has already been going on? yeah just help me out a little bit here right,
3: right. i'm talking about uh where uh, i'm i'm just sitting and feeling the sensations, but i 'm not sure if i 'm should be just paying attention to them or uh, or what I should do if there's anything to do do with them
0: well um, no there's the main thing to do is just to allow them to be there in awareness and be as aware of them as, as you can there's nothing uh, there's nothing wrong with Exploring the sensations with your attention, and uh, uh, as a matter of fact, it's probably pretty hard not to do that because uh, they they have an interest and appeal. They're unusual, and also they tend, in general, to be pleasant, right? So Uh,
3: they they can they can be unpleasant sometimes because they're they may be so strong.
0: Yes, right. And, and they but, just
3: have certain different vibratory uh, yeah. elements to them. I mean, some that are, are like the bubbly yeah. kind are, can be incredibly yeah. peaceful and incredibly soothing. Especially like at night can be mm-hmm. coming on so strong, I almost have to change position to um, try to defacilitate them.
0: Yes. So... Uh, my My advice is to let them be there, and uh, primarily it 's just allowing them to be there and having a very strong clear awareness uh, it 's if you 're not already in a state of powerful mindfulness uh sort of a, a, a some pajana kind of mindfulness that 's a really good reminder to like enter into that state. Let the physical sensations be there. Observe your mind's reaction to the physical sensations. Observe the Vedana of pleasant or unpleasant and notice how when they become in- intense, it perhaps goes from being more on the sukha side to the dukkha side and that sort of thing. That's well, that what you want to-
3: That's in me, that, that idea of, of just really seeing what situations- Yeah. What situations I'm in that give a rise to those.
0: Right. What,
3: like the, um,
0: what thoughts pass the, through your mind? What, yeah, what memories, what thoughts, what emotions, right. just whatever is happening in your mind. So it's a, that's, that's what I would suggest that you do with them. And I think you'll discover them to be very, very powerful uh, kinds of insight and experiences in themselves if you're just you're watching the whole I mean after all what you're doing is you're having a direct experience of uh, your, uh, your body really as a, a part of something greater of it not really being uh, of the solid substantial nature that the model of our body we carry in our mind is uh, or you asked me at another time something about uh, do I think the mind is a prediction machine? I think it's more than that, but I, I think it absolutely is, and I'm very interested in uh, the uh, uh, cognitive psychology uh, approach to predictive processing, and, you know it is a prediction machine. But what we ordinarily experience of the body is is a model that the mind has made. What these kinds of experiences give you an opportunity to do is experiencing your body in a in a way that is different from that model, experiencing the relationship between your body and your environment and your mind, mental processes, so on and so forth, seeing seeing the whole thing in a much uh, in a much clearer way. So uh, you can use. You can use these sensations when they're present as as a way of going beyond the models that we carry in our mind. And that is the essence of vipassana. Right? So you'll be in a very vipassana rich state if you any if you just allow yourself to be introspectively and extrospectively aware. Uh, of these sensations and of what 's going on in your mind, and that particular combination uh, is is you can use uh, well you can use your attention to explore things, and that that will be the investigation component of Vipassana it the seeing into seeing beyond its seeing uh, seeing how actually your mind is constructing all of this. Uh, so
3: this has been a very. Uh, I mean, I have to admit that there's been a lot of uh, personal insights into uh, my addiction to being um, efficient
2: mm-hmm.
3: and doing things very efficiently, and seeing how how much of my behavior uh, mm-hmm. comes it almost compulsively comes out as this seeking mm-hmm. of doing things efficiently, and it just. Even how much you can see pain arising
0: from Mm -hmm. Yes.
3: Thank you for confirming uh, with what you've said.
0: Yeah. Uh, You're welcome. And thanks for sharing your experience with us. So all right, let's see. Um, Next, I have Orhan Kareli. Is Orhan with us? Hey, hey, hi, hi, Orhan. Am I pronouncing your name right?
4: You are pronouncing it uh, perfectly, Orhan. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> that was just dumb luck, not knowledge. <laughs> yeah, all right, So uh, you're asking uh, which type of shamanism did uh, I study, and uh, can we make use of shamanic practices to supplement my TMI efforts in meditation towards non-dual mindset? Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a, well. First of all, uh, I studied uh, what uh, I studied with Michael Harner, and so what I studied was uh, core shamanism. In other words, you're familiar with Michael Harner?
4: No, I'm not, but I'm writing. Okay. It down, so i will look it
0: up. Yes, well, he spent he spent many years as an academic studying. Uh, shamanic cultures and looking for the common themes in all shamanic cultures and that 's what he called core shamanism and so then um, um, for a number of years he's been he 's been teaching shamanic practices to people, uh, particularly uh, journeying and different ways of of using uh, shamanic journeying, uh, what's called soul retrieval, uh, uh, whatever, if you're familiar with these different forms of shamanism, uh, you'll recognize that there are, uh, that these are common threads that uh, to, to one degree or another characterize these shamanic cultures. So we're, we're dealing with beings, uh, uh, we're dealing with another dimension of reality is really what we're doing with in shamanism that's what i learned and what it i found it incredibly fascinating it's um, yeah it, it makes you more aware than ever of how you're seeing a uh, a world that your mind has constructed due to the cumulative effect of uh, all of your own life experiences and your culture and everything like this. And um, you realize that you're not, that that there are whole worlds that are part of, that are, uh, what's the right word? They're existing simultaneously with this one and that uh, they can be accessible. One of the things that's very interesting is a common experience in young children is that they will be very much aware of what we might call these alternate realities and beings in this these alternate realities. And uh, then as they grow up, they learn that uh, it's not acceptable to have these uh, imaginary beings that you're interacting with in this this imaginary world and that it's time to grow up and see things the way everybody else does. But uh, shamanism is, is all about going the other way uh, and opening up and journeying is a very uh, uh, core part of that. You're, we're, you're really interested in how we can use these practices. Um, well, one of the the first thoughts came to my mind when you asked that question. I have to ask myself why I didn't think of it until you asked it, or if I had already and just hadn't explicitly recognized it. But it is it is a powerful way of dealing with the kind of psychological, emotional stuff that comes up in stages four and seven, and I refer to as purifications. Because an important part of shamanism is uh, that it's a way of healing, it's a way of bringing about spiritual and psychological and emotional healing. And I mentioned soul retrieval, I don't know if you're familiar with that, anybody else is familiar with that. Um, For for those that aren't, uh, the kind of the, the theory is that in your interactions with other people, and some of which are are very powerful interactions, um, sometimes what happens is some part of somebody else's soul sticks to us, uh, sticks to and at the same time, uh, it goes the other way. And then our interactions with other people, sometimes we lose parts of our soul to to the soul of others. I know this is just... About as non-Buddhist as you can get, but it really, it really, it really works quite well in a Buddhist framework uh, if, you're, if you're interested enough to pursue it. But what are we really talking about when we're talking about uh, uh, retrieving those bits of your soul that uh, have come from your experiences that don't essentially don't belong to you? And uh, that you need to get rid of it. And what what do we mean to say that that we've lost certain aspects of ourselves? Well, it's it's very much uh, it's very much like what happens as as we as after we're born, we grown, we have experiences, and every powerful experience we have, every powerful interaction changes us well every every even the most minuscule actions and interactions and reactions change us but uh, but they're the big ones that make big changes and these are the ones where we've either lost something or we've we've uh, taken on something that in the future manifests in uh, in our behavior in, in our reaction to things uh, it and to some degree, it uh, it, it shapes and, and molds different aspects of who and what we are. And so shamanism is really, it's all about healing. It's all about dealing with these things. It does it in a ceremonial way. But there is also, a there, it is a very, you know, if, if you're the one that's actually performing uh the ceremony or doing a journey on someone's behalf or something like this that um when when you are doing that you you have entered a very different realm and you can call upon your mind of course is going to do what it does anyway it's going to it's going to create formations that correspond to certain kinds of beings. And whoever has taught you shamanism, whatever culture you belong to, is going to determine much of the nature of how you see those beings in, in your mind. They can act as spirit guides. Uh, they can, you, can, you can call upon these forces to help heal somebody. And, uh, and this is the, really the, the, the role of a shaman, is to be a healer. For, for the whole tribal group, uh, for any member of it, so on and so forth. And, uh, the, and the soul retrieval part of it is a big part of it. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I feel like uh, after we finish uh, this session, I should try to get in touch with Michael and say, I just realized you're teaching something that could be used as a very powerful practice within the uh, uh, meditation of Dharma. Uh, community, because uh, as as we're all finding out and as you will all be finding out more and more as we go along here that uh, um, the forces that shape us uh, can sometimes um, leave behind things that we really do need to. Uh, Integrate back into the rest of ourselves, there you know whether you whether you uh, uh, metaphor eyes them as uh, as shedding bits of somebody else 's soul and recovering bits of your own it doesn 't matter uh, it 's very important that that the psychological healing that take place uh, and uh, just a little bit of something that. You've heard from me before, I know I've been on about this for a while now, but it was was such a wonderful, when Ken Wilber put this idea out of waking up is not enough, but cleaning up, growing up, and there's also showing up, but most especially cleaning up and growing up are things that have to go along with waking up, but almost no tradition ever deals with all of these things. And Buddhist meditation traditions uh, are uh, outstanding in their ability to guide a person towards waking up without necessarily producing uh, as much growing up and, and cleaning up as needs to happen. So what I present in The Mind Illuminated is the recognition that these things that other practices will tell you to just, uh, you know, work through, push down, ignore, you know, just focus on the rise and fall, so on, it uh, encourages you to confront them and to see them and understand them. So, uh, But one of the things that, uh, that I've come to realize in my own experience is that... Uh, Um, meditation alone uh, it's the amount of cleaning up that it's going to do is is just what's necessary for you to uh, have insight and awaken and the more insight and awakening you experience the less likely you are to notice these things because they make themselves known Primarily through dukkha, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they're the unawakened parts of uh, uh, of uh, yourself, and when you become awakened, uh, and you're dwelling in this place where dukkha just just passes through you or over you or whatever, um, you you become you become blind to this, and this is not the same thing as repression or spiritual bypassing or anything else although somebody who's prone to repression or spiritual bypassing of course would uh, well we, we've seen uh, we've, uh, some wonderful research done by Bill Hamilton a book he wrote about saints and psychopaths uh, how, how often saints are psychopaths <laughs> so um, and uh, it kind of illustrates the fact that Uh, it's really important that we put a major emphasis on cleaning up. And and I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to say in the mind illuminated that we've, that we we've done that rather than, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, just note it and go back to the rise and fall or whatever other, and so you know, uh, uh, go back and stare at the wall a little longer and so on and so forth. Uh, But, I've realized it's not enough. It's not enough in the sense that, sure, it will facilitate greatly insight and awakening. You know, and I think uh, the mind illuminated is a really, really powerful and effective uh, method that it is it is bringing people to insight and awakening. But, uh, it doesn't go far enough. and. It's just the nature of what we are is that um, there, there will be parts of our psyche that harbor things that have always been buried but uh, could potentially have been recognized and dealt with more easily. But as, as, as you become as, as you progress on the paths of awakening, the chances of you recognizing them as something that needs to be purified diminishes. And so, yeah, long, long answer to your question, Arhan, but I think I, it's, it's because it's inspired me. It's, yes, let's look at bringing shamanism into these, into these spiritual paths. Now, it has to be done in the right way. Because as we all know, uh, Tibet Buddhism is really a a, a marriage of Buddhism and uh, the uh, Po, the uh, shamanic uh, system. But in the evolution of that in Tibet, we come up with this awkward situation of a theocracy where uh, the the nature uh, the the nation consists of impoverished peasants, and uh, that all of the wealth is concentrated in these uh, gilded monasteries with huge huge tapestries that have actually been created by uh, by people living in poverty with uh, crippling arthritis in their hands and fingers as a result, and so on and so forth uh, so Yeah, uh, it's not, in other words, like anything else, uh, bringing shamanism into Buddhism is not going to be magic, but it has an enormous power, and if it's used in the right way. uh, And that's probably how Tibetan Buddhism, how it was originally used, I would think.
4: The journey you uh, introduced us to, Seems to have a lot of overlap with uh, Tibetan tantric empowerment practices. They uh, yeah. one set of imprints uh, with the Buddha imprints.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, talking about shamanism, people don't realize, but just like the Tibetan is a mixture, uh, Muslim Sufi tradition is a mixture of Muslim religion with the Turkish shamanism from Central Asia. Uh, That's where the mysticism and the unique practices are coming from.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
4: But uh, I really appreciated your answer. Thank you.
0: Yes. Well, I I certainly appreciated your question. (laughs) Oh, and it's not your only one. I see you have another one after this. Um, In the last 10 years, a number of articles were published on uh, default mode network and task-positive network. Uh, based on fMRI studies during meditation, uh, do you see validity in the the uh, default mode network theories? If so, how can we take advantage of the default mode knowledge? Uh, uh, de- default mode, yeah, knowledge in our meditative path. Thanks. Okay, A v- very very interesting question. Um, The default mode network is what produces that inner chatter, that inner self-talk, that uh, ongoing recycling of whatever the things that are currently going on in your life. And of course, uh, uh, when you are performing a task that requires the the focus of your attention, uh, the default mode network Stops producing the inner chatter, and what they found, of course, is that what they 're referring to as the default mode network is one one uh, set of of neural uh, networks, and what they 're referring to is a task mode network uh, as being a a, a a different collection of uh, neural neural networks um, that is active when you're engaged in a task and when that inner voice is not going on. Now, what we know from experience is that you can be engaged in a task, you that you can slip into that inner chatter thing and then your mind will recognize you you will become aware that it's time to stop that and refocus on the on the task, but many tasks uh have that nature I did woodworking for a lot of years and you go you You can go into this space where your mind is just uh, talking talking to itself, the kind of thing that happens to us uh, pretty much continuously, and it's only when we're doing something that it stops so but uh, you can be doing a task and, and and be slipping in and out of that so it's kind of gotten to be this thing of uh, uh default mode network, bad. Task mode network well that's what's happening that that's what has the power to 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 overcome this bad uh, default mode network and if you think about it I, I mean it's kind of ridiculous it's ludicrous um, I mean you're saying that something as powerful as a default mode network is uh, a useless uh, vestigial thing that we don't even need you know sort of like an an appendix or you know a sixth finger or something like that I mean uh, to me uh, the first time I encountered this i thought I, I thought to myself yeah something this major is um, is just uh, it's just some something that we uh, would be better off without you know if you could just remove it somehow uh, we we'd all be better off we enjoy that inner silence but uh I actually i think what the default mode network or what's referred to as the default mode network is a consequence of our uh, awareness deficit disorder and our total domination of experience by, by attention. By attention and by those uh, parts of the mind associated with Attention! That when you're when you're not paying attention to something in particular, they're looking for something to do, and so they're constantly rehashing uh, something that happened yesterday, something you're looking forward to tomorrow, something that you're worried about, something you're afraid of, etc., and and so on. Um, now, I think that the. That what that really is, is a part of the whole attentional network that is very important and very valuable, but it should be turned off when you're not using it, and uh, it doesn't have an off switch anymore. Except that this is something that through meditative practice, one of the things that does characterize uh, meditation and the process of insight and uh, achievement of uh, the first stage of awakening is a quieting of the default mode network that the there there is a there is an inner silence and it's an absolutely wonderful thing but i think what it is it's the result i think the essence of awakening is bringing your mind more back into balance where the balance between awareness and attention as conscious manifestations, there are reflections of an imbalance between uh, what uh, we'll call for convenience, and I'm, and I'm following Ian McGilchrist here, the right brain and left brain processes. So we're, we're way out of balance. We're, we're left brain dominant in a way that uh, is largely responsible for our suffering and the suffering that we cause other people, and it's something that I believe Yuval Harari has actual uh, has accurately identified as a shift that took place in the species Homo uh, about seventy thousand years ago. So it's not a genetic shift, but uh, what we know now: the brain restructures itself. What McGilchrist talks about now is that the corpus callosum, which Connects the two hemispheres, which do have a lateralization of function. Although, you know, the uh, most most neurosciences neuroscientists always want to tell you, but there is nothing that is reserved to just one hemisphere. That's absolutely right. There is no there is no process that's reserved to a single hemisphere. Even speech, uh, and in women compared to men, there's more right hemisphere involvement in speech, and I think. That's something that if you pay attention to the verbal abilities of men and women that, that becomes immediately obvious, there is a difference. And men tend to be more totally left brain when it comes to verbal, verbal verbalizations than, than women do. Uh, guys that's why we can never win an argument with a woman. (laughs) So it's it's hardly even worth trying. And that's, that's one, that's one of the things that, uh, comes with wisdom. But but yeah, if we look at the corpus callosum that, that uh, the way it is in modern uh, homo sapiens, there, there is a, a predominance of fibers that go from, from the left brain to the right brain that are inhibitory in nature. And the brain is in a very plastic state. When you're born, between the time of your birth uh, and uh, about five years of age, your your brain essentially, that's when your brain wires itself to become a human brain. That's also when, you know, uh, I think the, the tabula rasa theory is a bit of an exaggeration, but on the other hand, that is when your brain is most subject to uh, what we would call uh, external influences, in other words, you adopt so much from your caregivers, when you are, uh, your caretakers, when you're an infant, of their views. When we talk to children, what are we doing? We're passing along to them. We talk to babies. Uh, we're passing along to them patterns of seeing things, of behaving, of talking, of expressing emotions, of all kinds of things. Um, and this is a time when the brain is wiring itself, and I I think that what Yuri uh, has uh, uh, identified is the point in time where uh, an accumulation of cultural memes—that's kind of like an accumulation of genes—that produces a, a phenotypical change in, in an animal, but. As accumulation of what we might call memes, cultural memes, became strong enough that over a short period of time, infants growing up in this culture that is dominated by this set of memes, their brains became wired to replicate and perpetuate that. And that's who we are. And that's what our practice is undoing. I think uh, it is... It is rebalancing our brain, and I'm waiting for the day that somebody checks and finds out that there are either there are fewer uh, inhibitory fibers going from left to right in the brain of awakened people. Thing. So. Um, Thank you again. Yeah. So, back to the default net network, just to finish this up. So. It's, it's a necessary and functional part. It just, in in this shift to left brain dominance, uh, it and its connection to the verbal centers and things like that, um, it, it lost its off switch. <laughs> it lost its off switch. And it's bad enough that we go around with all this perpetual storytelling in our heads. But it's more than just a nuisance. It's, a, it's an enormous troublemaker. Because one of the things I'm sure that you've noticed as, you, as your introspective awareness increases and you notice the kinds of things that are going on in your mind, the kind of self-talk that's occurring, these are the stories that you're living by. This chatter is repeating the stories that uh, whatever your story happens to be, you know, but this, this is, this is where it's being generated. Uh, you know, I, I'm not as good as other people for such and such reason, or I, 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 have a right to, to expect everyone around me to uh, hold my interests above anything else. You know, uh, whatever the story is, as a matter of fact, I love Byron Katie because she kind of deals with this, right where it comes into consciousness. What is your story? Where would you be without your story? What if you changed your story? But working backwards again to the default mode network, it's more than this self-talk, if you've noticed, how many of you have noticed this in just observing the nature of your own self-talk, right? It's it's not good, <laughs> it's not good. There's the stories that you're telling yourself, uh, yeah, they're not they're not the best uh, they're not the best influence to be shaping who you are, but you can reshape them. What and, and that's what happens when part of of having a, a part of being a self craving awakening is um, it, it's 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 the shifting of your inner story to in a positive direction. So now you can start telling yourself. Stories you can commentate on your meditations, and you can uh, uh, you can uh, talk to yourself about uh, how much better you are, and how much better you feel, and how much better you get along with people since you've been meditating. And oh, this meditation is really wonderful. And uh, so on and so forth. Those are really good stories. Of course, there's the bad stories too. There's the, there's how come how come I'm not already an arahant uh, or uh, whatever other version of bad story you can associate with meditation. But we we part of what we're doing is learning to tell ourselves a better kind of story, and that's a really good way to use the default mode network uh, while you've got one while it's still something that's going to be telling stories uh, and that hasn't disappeared. Some people, especially one of the biggest problems, I think with this whole default mode network theory is it's created the idea that, that we want to get rid of it and it's not a good thing. And the goal of our practice is to make it disappear. Well, the disappearance of it, there's other ways that you can make it disappear um, other than, than being, Awakened, um, and the disappearance of it is not a cause or a part or uh, of of awakening. It's a side effect. It's a side effect of. I mean, if awakening represents moving more to a right brain uh, awareness, especially the uh, uh, mindful awareness that we call uh, sati sampajana, then then that, yes, that's that's the direction we're trying to move to. And the default net, mode network can play a role before it disappears. It can play a positive role. Um, you, can, you can declare yourself a bodhisattva. You can decide to practice compassion. You can decide to practice, you, you, you can start telling different kinds of stories about yourself. This is actually very closely related to the way the buddha took the word karma which which literally means action and in the Buddha's day has come to mean action with moral consequences and the buddhist buddha saw that it wasn't what happened to you because what you did that it was really uh, i mean that is something that is just plain old causality like you go around uh you're being a good person people are going to treat you well you go around being an asshole and uh, people are not going to treat you so well Uh, there's just plain old causality but he said when i say karma i mean intent because behind every action is is an intention and uh and that's what's important is what's behind the action and the important thing is if that intention is driven by craving and self-clinging then it's shaping you in a really bad way, and if it's not, then it's shaping you differently. Uh, and the same thing is true of the default mode network. Uh, it's, it's, it's telling your story. So the goal isn't to get rid of it. It will go away. You don't need to make it go away. It'll go away on its own, but make good use of it while you have it, you know? Uh, take bodhisattva vows, or uh, take Take vows of, of any kind, um, redefine how you think of yourself, uh, observe your behavior mindfully and recognize when you 're being unskillful and unmindful and, and, and Let those be the stories that your default mode, mode, mode network recycles like an idling engine that, uh, can't, that you know doesn 't have a job to do, so it just recycles whatever is keeps running running the same stuff. That whatever happens to be near enough by for the machine to to crank away on, give it some good stuff to crank away on. That's a good use of the default mode network. Eventually, you come to a place where there's an off switch, so you still have a default no- node network, and it's still doing a really important job. Anytime you have a task to uh, perform that involves focused attention and verbal processing or logical processing or these other kinds of things that the default mode network is designed to do. So, how's that for an answer?
4: <laughs> using default uh, uh, mode network for positive reinforcements for uh, rewiring uh, uh, our brain wasn't an answer I expected and again, I am just blown away by your
0: wisdom. Thank you yeah well, think about you know uh, uh um, <laughs> Oh, the word just slipped out of my mind. That's the trouble with being seventy-four. Uh, w- w- what is it when you have some positive statement that you repeat to yourself? Uh, you know Affirmation. what Affirmations. Affirmations. Yes. Why on earth would repeating affirmations? Yeah. I mean, can you see the connection? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. and as as a matter of fact, uh, think about thinking. Think about. Uh, uh, chanting mantras and the role of mantras, uh, and even the extensive use of mantras in uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, where they're uh, they're a, a part of the of the tantric practice of uh, of uh, generation, where you're you're doing your deity practices and things like that. This this is this is all related. The chanting of a mantra. Uh, I mean, a mantra can be a meaningless sound, but a more powerful mantra is one that has meaning and you know the meaning, and the, mo- and the meaning is there whenever Om Mani Padme Hum, or whatever it is that you're doing. Om Ahung Hum, or Tara Tutara Tara Yasoha, anyway. If you know what these things mean, if you know what they're referring to, then you're doing more than just repeating some sounds. However, just repeating some sounds, I, I won't take anything away from that either. But it's like affirmations. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so it's, it's now been an hour and a half. Is Michael Walsh here? Uh, no. And uh, Jennifer Waldman? No? How about Paul Rodriguez? Yeah, I'm here. You're here, okay, great. Uh, we'll stretch this out a little further because you're here and you have a question and I want to deal with it, okay? But that all right there, everyone? You can leave if you want, I won't mind. I won't be insulted. Okay, so I'm curious about references in the suttas to the cessation of consciousness. I was reading Analio's recently, his uh, recently about Tana, and he stated that when, excuse me here, he stated that when passion for the aggregates is overcome, consciousness becomes unestablished and final liberation will be attained. I did some online research which revealed that the idea of cessation may be an errant translation of Naroda. Am I confusing the term? unestablished by equating it with cessation. Um, can you speak to both of these ideas? Um, I don't recognize the Pali word that, uh, that you're saying is being translated as uh, unestablished. Um. And is this, is this a, oh, an aliyo? So this is going to be one of the Pali suttas, okay. So, yes. So when passion for the aggregates is overcome, consciousness becomes unestablished and final liberation will be attained. Um, it, it, it's. First of all, let me just acknowledge that, uh, that I'm not familiar with the use of the word unestablished. I don't know what the Pali equivalent, it's not in my vocabulary. Uh, and uh, I, I really enjoy Anlio's work, but I haven't read the one that he's made this particular reference. But um, Neroda and Nirvana, have uh, very similar meanings and um, both of them are uh, implying, uh, but in di- in different ways, something that I think to translate in English as cessation is, I believe that that's a reasonable translation for uh, both nirvana and nirroda and nirroda is has retained its meaning as a like the word cessation okay something undergoes sensation or something that ceases right and so it's uh it's a a descriptive term that uh has some kind of object that it 's describing, whereas what 's happened with nirvana which which means uh, to extinguish or to be extinguished uh, it also is a descriptive term, and you need to uh, you need to it, it requires by itself uh, it, the, to be combined with some kind of specification of what it is that's extinguished. What is the extinguishing of a candle flame uh, an analogy to? And so I'm really comfortable with the word cessation. I, like I say I don't know what unestablished means in this contact, but cessation, nirvana, and nirvana as all referring to something that ceases to occur, either temporarily uh, or in some cases permanently. So, for example, the Buddha spoke of the nir- nirvana of, uh, of of craving and the uh, the nirvana of that was the cessation of dukkha and craving and self clinging. And then there's this other cessation, is much more. Powerful cessation, this, this naroda or cessation of all mental formations. Now, there's a distinction made in, in between two kinds of nirvana, two kinds of extinctions, two kinds of cessations. Uh, once again, I'm sorry, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to just see if I can figure out how unestablished relates to this. Um, and actually, I think I'm catching the thread of it and we'll have to check with, have to do a little scholarly work to see if I have got it. But um, yeah, we, we can apply these cessations to many things and there's the total cessation that Naroda refers to that is uh, considered to be equivalent to death. So there is the cessation that people associate with the the Uh, nirvana uh, of all mental formations and uh, a big deal has been come to be made of that kind of cessation as an important event in the awakening process Uh, and the extreme form of that is the naroda Samapati which according to the I've never practiced Narodha Samapati but uh, apparently uh, it's something that you go into this of stasis and it typically can last for a week or longer um, uh, and, and uh, as they say the only difference between the, this particular nirvana of the nirodhasanapati and the parinibbana of death is that there is still warmth in the body. The body temperature falls Dramatically in the Naroda, Naroda Samapati, but there's still warmth. And that's, of course, you know, in, in the people of those times, they didn't have EEGs and EKGs and things like that. So there's a lot, who knows what state of the body was in. I think it's probably, I think Naroda Samapati is a state that's very similar to what these yogis go into when, you know, they're buried underground for a week, things like that, and then dug up and they're still alive. Um, very powerful uh, cessation so there's a lot of different cessations but what is the Nirvana what is the cessation that the Buddha is spoken of as dwelling in Nirvana but uh, his um, the uh, the the mind of Buddha dwells in Nirvana while the the speech and action of the Buddha dwells in the marketplace meaning that he was walking around teaching collecting alms and things like this so uh, the Nirvana that's being referred to here is the, is the extinction of uh, self-clinging, craving, and, and dukkha. Right? Now let's see if, I uh, just make one stab here. At, uh, he stated that when passion for the aggregates is overcome and consciousness becomes unestablished, and final liberation will be attained. Uh, Now, the cessation of consciousness is essentially what the nirvana of uh, mental formations is. Um, It's it's essentially consciousness without an object, right? And you can't have consciousness without an object so it's a cessation of consciousness uh, but it can make an imprint on your memory and you can recall it afterwards as a cessation event or as a as consciousness without a uh, without an object um, uh, okay i i think the closest that i can come to this is that the unestablished, the, what, what's referring to is consciousness becomes unestablished, I think it's, my, this is my guess, could be totally off the wall, but so this is my guess, is that it, it's referring to that state of consciousness that the Buddha described as in the seeing is only the seeing and in the walking is only the walking and the hearing is only the hearing and thinking is only the thinking. So there's consciousness but the consciousness is unestablished in any sense of a self as an actor uh, or even observer. So that's going to be my guess about the, the consciousness becoming unestablished uh, in, in uh, self and uh, craving and everything else that flows out of that. And that, that, is, uh, that is the liberation, of course, that, uh, that is the final liberation. Uh, yeah, I guess what slowed me down a little bit with that was, was final liberation. Uh, because the final liberation is what happens uh, at death. Uh, that's the of, of all the nirvanas. That's that's the one that has the label pari, which means uh, it, it means beyond. It means ultimate. It means uh, uh, the, the 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 most. <laughs> so the most nirvana you can have is is the death of the. Uh, of of the body, and that and the Naroda Samapati are known as nirvana without remainder, quite appropriate, right? And all other nirvanas are nirvana with remainder, and we know what that remainder is, right? It's it's those characteristics of suffering and craving and uh, self-clinging, that are gradually unwound through the process of uh, traversing the four paths. So, there's a, there's there's my guess. It's, it'll be fun to see what what you find out if you pursue pursue the poly meaning. Uh, but anyway, I got to say something I felt was worth saying, even if it turns out that it's from a scholastic point of view is incorrect. Um, <laughs> So, okay, well, it's been, it's been fun. I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry that we got off to a little problematic start there. And it seems like we did answer the questions of everybody that was here, which is always my number one goal. So thank you very much. Hope you, hope you enjoyed this and uh, look forward to talking to you again.